Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. Uh, I mentioned earlier, John, uh, in, in another segment that uh, uh, that Justice Barrett was extremely close uh, to me at, when I was at council table for the Cochran case this week. Uh, Justice Gorsuch was the second closest uh, person to me. I caught his eye a, a couple of times. Uh, and, but what I didn't know at the time was that he had uh, just uh, issued a dissental uh, in the Buffington v. McDonough case, which was another uh, case that the New Civil Liberties Alliance had at the Supreme Court. We assert was pending uh, until Monday. So the same day that we're up there doing the oral argument in Cochrane, we get the uh, dissent from the denial of cert from, from Justice Gorsuch. And in fact, Rich Samp, who did the briefs, just walked down to pick it up to see what would have happened. And then he sees it's right there. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> So he knew, I guess, maybe ahead of time, but I, uh, I, after oh, it was after, yeah. okay, but I, I didn't know uh, that that uh, that that had happened. But, uh, but it's it's really a nice dissent from from the denial of cert that Justice Gorsuch uh, has provided here, kind of a consolation prize, uh, John. We think of these dissentals that way sometimes because it means we didn't get four votes from the from the nine to to hear this case on the merits, and that's disappointing. Uh, and as um, uh, you know, as as Justice Gorsuch uh, put it, uh, the lower courts in this case turned aside Mr. Buffington's petition, asking them to set aside the agency's regulation. Uh, instead, the courts invoked Chevron deference, bypassed any independent review of the relevant statutes, and allowed the agency to continue to employ its rules to the detriment of veterans. Respectfully, those who have served in the nation's armed forces deserve better from our agencies and courts alike. And, and I share his disappointment that the court didn't see that this matter was fit for uh, for its uh, consideration because there's a problem with Chevron deference throughout uh, the uh, administrative state, and this case shows the problem. And, and I thought that it was it was interesting. Uh, in one place, uh, Justice Gorsuch points out that there used to be a different rule that the agency had, and Congress didn't change the statute. There was nothing that Congress did. The agency just came along and decided, oh, we're going to do a different rule, and this rule will be detrimental to the veterans instead of in favor of the veterans, as the statute is and as the original regulation and, and was. It, and it places starkly that a law is passed, and the law means two different things depending on what the agency says, and that's not law. That's not law. That's right, and it's not fixed, and it's not certain. It's not something you can rely on or plan around, uh, and that's that's problematic. Uh, but he, he also pointed out that the that the rule that the agency, the second rule, that sort of the newer version, the, the one they applied to Mr. Buffington, uh, is favorable to the agency. And I don't, don't just mean in the sense of, of uh, maybe spending less money on veterans benefits, but it's just easier for the agency, right? They don't have to keep track of who's gone in and out of service. They just have to wait for the veteran to, to ask to have his benefits restarted. And if he forgets or doesn't or what have you, uh, then, you know, no uh, you know, no uh, skin off their back. So I thought that, that that was an interesting observation from Justice Gorsuch that 
that the agency was getting away here with making life easier for the agency. And that's probably not, that's probably not what Chevron deference even is, uh, is meant for, but it's the incentive uh, that is, uh, that is certainly uh, created. He also, uh, uh, well, he, Justice Gorsuch has written uh, before quite a bit about uh, Chevron and all the different problems, including when he was at the Tenth Circuit in in a quite good decision that probably helped catch uh, President Trump's eye in terms of why Gorsuch was appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, but he laments at the end of this dissental that, uh, quote, no measure of silence on this court's part and no number of separate writings on my part and so many others will protect Americans who find themselves caught in Chevron's maw. At this late hour, the whole project deserves a tombstone no one can miss. We should acknowledge forthrightly that Chevron did not undo and could not have undone the judicial duty to provide an independent judgment of the law's meaning in the cases that come before the nation's courts. Someday soon, I hope we might. And you know that's. Um, and he had gone through how there was no deference until the 1930s. He does a whole historical thing, and that's what he's referring back to there. That's right. And and you know I thought it was it was interesting. Uh, he's talking about even at the time of, of the New Deal and some of you know, some of the the sort of more uh, less skeptical folks about the New Deal. There was still a, a real feeling at that point in the 1930s. Uh, that it was well established that courts are not bound by administrative constructions of the law. And he cites a lot of uh, court precedents uh, from uh, from that uh, era. He also uh, cites the dean of the Harvard Law School at that time, Roscoe Pound, uh, who was worried that uh, that this sort of administrative, that, that giving the interpretation of statutes to the executive would lead to a kind of administrative absolutism. And he has a he has a great, I thought, uh, line. He says, in the 1940s, as the administrative state began to spread its wings. Yes. Well, and, and that's when the APA was passed in 1946. And he points out that it was passed unanimously, which is unusual in Congress, to say the least. And it was after, a, it's especially unusual that it was after sharp divisions, very sort of strong debate, uh, but the Congress ultimately came down uh, to decide that there would be deference to the factual findings of these administrative judges. But the Administrative Procedure Act says that courts, quote, shall decide all relevant questions of law, interpret constitutional and statutory provisions, and determine the meaning or applicability of the terms of agency action, end quote. That's Section 706 of the APA. So, so to these folks who say that Chevron is about congressional intent, no. The congressional intent is right there in the APA. And and that APA directive has been so ignored for so long, and I can't believe it as the as the court becomes more textualist. Uh, everyone, we cite this all the time, and they go, ah. Right, right. Well, and, and uh, he cites uh, this new book from, from Tom Merrill, The Chevron uh, Doctrine, a, a 2022 book. I haven't had the chance to, to read it yet, but it's on my, it's on my short stack of, of books I need to read. Uh, the... Uh, uh, he quotes Merrill saying that uh, that the APA uh, unequivocally appeared unequivocally to instruct courts to apply independent judgment on all questions of law, and so you, you know, there you have a, a modern scholar sort of interpreting it uh, the same way. And I think that uh, there's nothing surprising in what uh, uh, in what Justice Gorsuch says here, but he's very thorough in running through all of the various sort of usual arguments. Uh, against a Chevron, 
with one notable uh, exception, John, and that is he doesn't mention the pro-veteran canon of construction anywhere. And the two questions presented in the Buffington case, one was, should Chevron be overturned? But that was the second question. The first question was, does the pro-veteran canon of construction take precedence over Chevron? And, he doesn't and, even address that. And for the listeners, so the, the whole thing about modern Chevron and the court moving away from it is they always say, use all the canons, use all everything in your traditional it, tools. Yeah, yeah, use all your tools before you get to Chevron. And I, I would also point out that uh, as, as long as we're talking about scholars, he also cites Phil Hamburger on the fact that Chevron brings systematic bias toward one of the parties. And that's from... Uh, Phil, uh, Professor Hamburger and Chevron bias in the George Washington Law Review so yes. also cited. Yes, his landmark 2016 article. So that was great. We're always happy to see uh, our founder and CEO cited in the Supreme Court opinion. So appreciate that. Uh, the, uh, but he cites uh, footnote nine from Chevron, which is the one that, that, that talks about employing tools of, of statutory uh, uh, traditional tools of, of statutory interpretation before looking at any sort of, of uh, uh, ambiguity. But he also talks about the fact that Chevron really was, was an accidental precedent, right? It was destined to obscurity, he talks about. And then he talks about Justice Scalia being the one to sort of revive, res- it. revive it or rescue it from obscurity and turn it into this, uh, you know, into this powerhouse that Chevron has become, where it's the most cited case. Uh, and, and, and just two, two quick thoughts about that, John. One, uh, he points out that Scalia at the end was, was sort of had changed his mind about that, or at least was coming around to changing his mind about that. So even the, the Jedi master Yoda, mm-hmm. uh, Justice Scalia was, uh, was no longer you know, of the view uh, that, that Chevron was, uh, was, was maybe the way to go on that. And I think it's, it's pretty funny because obviously he took the Scalia, the Scalia um, seat and he that's his like mentor he went and he's a textualist right, exactly yeah. so i did think that he 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 handled all of the pro chevron scalia cases gently let's put it that way <laughs> <laughs> and then he said and then after doing all of these um uh things he turned away from it and then you know and unfortunately only i'm here to uh to then complete the uh the turning. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but he talks about Marbury versus Madison, the duty of judges to say what the law is. He talks about the fact that uh, uh, that judges have to do uh, uh, justice without respect to persons. He says no man can be a judge in his own case, which Chevron goes against that by by deferring to the executive, even when the executive's there. Uh, he does talk about ancient doctrines of lenity and contra proferentum. Uh, so you know, he it's not that he doesn't cite some of these. He knows what canons are, he knows right? What canons are just again the pro veteran canon uh, uh, is the dog that didn't bark here. And you know what else struck me? He did mention the states that have gotten rid of their state chevrons. Yes, and they put in an amicus brief. And I have been, I have been arguing to beat the band that the states should be getting rid of Chevron and show that there's not a parade of horribles. That's that's absolutely what they've done. And they put in this brief and he cites it directly. And I really hope in the future that this will come up because the whole um, power of Chevron for the other side who's pro Chevron is that we don't want um, to have all of uh uh, of these act, actions of the executive overturned and we'll be doing too much and and they won't have any flexibility and all of that. Well, these states have had this and it's not like the, they're not able to run administrative law. Yeah, the sky has not fallen in those right. uh, in those states. 
Uh, so, so kudos uh, to Justice Gorsuch for this dissent. I think, uh, you know, I think that he he does a nice job through all of the the, the, the arguments uh, here. Uh, I share his hope that the court will will be very very clever on Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark has left us, and uh, I had uh, noticed that this week there was an election. And at NCLA, we don't do much with the Congress or anything. We we uh, often have um, briefs supporting separation of powers and talk about their powers. And um, I don't usually have uh, opportunity to speak about, uh, you know, uh, on this program anything about the Senate, but you'd think that elections are important and that, uh, how does that affect administrative law? And as we, um, as we, uh, have this program, we don't really know where the Senate's going to be because all the returns aren't in and there might be this runoff in Georgia and either way right now it's a 50, 50 Senate and ties are broken by the vice president. And, uh, it, whether or not the Republicans have 51 or 52 or, or uh, you know, whether it's 49, 51 for the Democrats or 52, 48 for the Democrats. Um, uh, this actually has some uh, material bearing on administrative law for this reason. Um, right now, with a 50-50 Senate and the vice president breaking ties in both judicial appointments and administrative appointments, meaning all those folks who have to be approved by the Senate. The House doesn't get to approve uh, nominees. The Senate does. And so that's why we have confirmation hearings. And we're all very familiar with the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. But there are those for every federal judge has to go through that. Uh, All the main officers do. And um, you can bring up complaints of what you why you think what this person has written or done is bad uh, and, and that they shouldn't do it once they're an administrative, uh, once they've taken office. And what I find interesting for as far as administrative law is, well, first you have the appointment of judges. Um, and so uh, the, the president will get less of a free hand in appointments of judges if there is an opposition party controls the Senate. So what does that mean? Well, how do they actually affect this? Because maybe you could pull over a vote of, of, of someone from the opposite party for uh, your nominee and, and you'd still get the same nominees, but who you pick in order to get that, uh, that approval by someone from the opposite party may moderate uh, where they are. And the other thing is scheduling the, the, Head of the, the Senate, if whether or not it's Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell, makes a big difference on when they schedule hearings and how fast things move, because the uh, head of the Senate, the majority leader, has a lot of say 
in how fast things move and what gets done and what gets put on top of the agenda. And so these, this is little minutia, whereas we, we think with an election this close, really nothing's going to change as far as what bills get passed, which is, I think, the, the main job of the Congress is passing budgets, passing bills, all the stuff we, we see on Schoolhouse Rock uh, that, um, that is very important to the country. But for administrative law, I think that the main, uh, they're not going to be passing bills, the main thing they do in the Senate that really affects administrative law and can really affect its direction other than passing bills is by approving or not approving the president's nominees. And this can have a a lot of effect on what we call energy in the executive. The executive needs uh, the appointees of the agencies to be carrying out the will of the president and who those people are and how, uh, you know, what their priorities are. We all hope that they're the same as the, as the presidents, but I, I think that all uh, of the elections, um, certainly, uh, certainly uh, since Obama left, we're, we're never quite sure uh, of, of whether that's the case or not. Um, and when you have a divided Senate, maybe you put in a guy who, yeah, you like him, but he's not really going to be doing everything you would want done in that position. So, um, and I think it's the design of the Senate is to do that. The, I, I don't think when they wrote it, they didn't really want parties, so they didn't think it would be party-based, but they thought it would be faction-based, I think is what Madison Hamilton would call it. Um, but I, I do think that it's kind of uh, interesting, and there are probably people right now who are up for appointment or people are thinking about appointment. And depending on who, you know, whether the Senate goes you know, 51 for the Republicans or 51 for the Democrats makes a big deal of whether they get appointed or not and what type of person um, is going to be running this agency or be the uh, assistant to this agency. Um, And so not only judges, but also administrators are going to be affected by this. And I don't really think that most people, when they go into the voting booth, have this in mind. Obviously, administrative law people do, but... uh, uh, but I don't think uh, normal Americans give it uh, two seconds thought. But I think they do vote. If you're voting on direction, when you vote for a, a person from this party or that party, you're also voting for direction of the administrative state when you vote for a senator. Because whether or not that senator is going to hold up an appointment or whether he's going to actually vote someone down if they control the uh, Senate. And this brings up another issue, which is when it's this close, uh, you know, Joe Manchin has voted for all of uh, Joe Biden's picks for um, the judiciary, right? So he he's he is is looked upon as sort of this outlier. And same same with uh, Senator Sinema. So there, you'll read in the press, oh, they they're doing this, they're doing they're doing that, they're doing certain things for their states uh, legislatively that may not be with his agenda, but by and large, being in the same party, they're giving him, they're giving President Biden the people he wants to run the agencies. And so uh, I think that's an important thing. Whereas the other side, if they get in, they have no, uh, they have an institutional, I certainly think Mitch McConnell does, an institutional belief in making sure that the agencies are, uh, have appointed people and are, are being run but they may have some uh, 
opposition to maybe the more uh, radical uh, of the um, of the Biden appointees, just as the Democrats would do the same under a Republican. They wouldn't want the the most red hot of the Republican nominees, certainly like, for instance, to EPA, right? You, the Democrats are not going to want EPA run by somebody who they feel is against the agenda. And they've often said this, that they, they think that some of the Republican nominees are against the agenda of the EPA as, as written by Congress. And so they'll, they'll oppose those things. But all of that has a effect on the day-to-day -day operations of the administrative agencies. Whether or not you are a compromiser or whether or not you want to just plow through regardless is a big difference in how administrative law gets done. But there's another thing that goes on, and that is uh, if a appointee, they have to make regulations. Do they cut corners or do they not cut corners? One of the things that I think may benefit um, a incumbent presidential party is if there is a narrow opposition against you, very narrow by one vote, you may be putting in better candidates, people who are going to dot all the I's and cross all the T's as far as making a regulation. We saw a number of of, of regulations struck down in, in the Trump era. And I think we're seeing some now in the Biden era, just because they didn't do it right. And there's really unless you're just trying to make a political point and you're not trying to get the, make the regulation uh, both constitutional and efficacious, um, you want them to stick. You don't want them to be struck down because you didn't do the right amount of notice and comment or you didn't answer all the comments. I mean, that's just, that's just uh, regulatory malpractice. You, you, you want those things done properly. And I, I'm hoping, or at least I'm hopeful from administrative law perspective that if there is divided government in the Senate, uh, there will be uh, people appointed who, um, in order to get through the Senate, they know they have to say, oh, yes, I'm going to do everything that uh, we're supposed to do as far as notice and comment. Or they'll talk about what, uh, you know, why they should be appointed more forcefully um, than they would if they just were going to get a rubber stamp by people of the same party. So that's what's going on. That's kind of what hangs in the balance. And it makes uh, a big difference to whether the how the administrative agencies are run, how the president directs those agencies, and all of it comes down to the Senate, which is up in the air right now, and which I think um, is going to be uh, in, in contested, certainly because of Georgia, it's probably going to be contested till December, so we don't get rid of all these uh, political ads, but it will matter because uh, it who controls the timing and the agenda is something that, as I said, we're not usually thinking about, but that have a big uh, impact. The, the last part of this is that there is a big controversy on acting heads of departments. So uh, one of the things the Trump administration did, and I, I think President Trump even said this, is he liked acting uh, people who are acting and not confirmed by the Senate because they were more reliant on him. But that's a problem. And I think all our listeners will know why that's a problem. It's because you're supposed to be confirmed by the Senate. It's, it's advice and consent of the Senate. One of the reasons we allow agencies uh, to act is because it's not just the president has let that person have that power. 
but that also the Senate has looked and made sure they're the type of person who could be trusted with that power. So uh, I, I, what, what happens when someone goes? Well, when someone leaves the administration, the next in line becomes the acting head. And that's only supposed to be very brief, 90 days, 120 days, something like this, and then someone else is supposed to come in. But if you're delayed pointing someone, then these acting uh, people sometimes go on longer with no Senate confirmation. And that's a problem, too. So uh, let's uh, see what happens in the Senate. We don't really have any dog in that fight, but I do find it's interesting for administrative law because it matters how the administrative state is run and by what kind of people. See you next time.